Well, I admit it's pretty bittersweet to conclude 45 sermons in the book of Exodus this morning in the condition that we're in with a small group in front of me and um, several and many of you online watching. But the more I thought about it this week, the more I was encouraged by the reality that I think the Lord not only providentially has ordained that we conclude the book this way, but also it's really sweet that we get to conclude the book this way. The reason why I say that is because the people of Israel, while this, while this is a glorious moment for them, it's, it's still a, a bittersweet moment in many ways. They're not in the promised land yet. They are still on, in the wilderness, on the journey home. And if anything, this whole coronavirus situation reminds us is that we are still living in a wilderness. We haven't reached the promised land, but we're on the way home. And it makes us long for the arrival of our coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to conclude the book of Exodus this morning, Exodus 35 through 40. I'm not, uh, you say, that's a pretty large chunk. That's five chapters. Well, yes, if you read through Exodus 35, especially through 35 through 39, you'll see that it's basically a repetition of the instructions concerning the building of the tabernacle. So we're not going to re-preach all that. But I do think it's sweet to take this whole section in one sermon, and I hope you'll see why as we walk through it this morning. These five chapters, 35 through 40, really serve as the climax of the book of Exodus. It's a truly wonderful moment for the people. And in light of all that's taken place in the intervening chapters, remember the previous chapters that we've considered, it's amazing that they've even gotten to this moment where the glory of the Lord comes down and fills the tabernacle. That was under threat for a little while. If you remember back in Exodus 32, 33, and 34, that was not a given. In fact, it was in jeopardy. But God, through his gracious character and the revelation of Moses as the mediator and his forgiveness of them and his reinstituting them and restarting the covenant, reinstating the covenant, God is shown to be a God of forgiveness and grace and a God of second chances. And it's really a miracle that these people receive these instructions, let alone experience the glory of the Lord in their midst. But such is God and such is his grace. Not only does it have an added wonder, but it also has an added security. We know that the people of Israel, as they've shown themselves again and again, and as we've seen ourselves in them, are a fickle and sinful people. But we also know that the Lord's unchanging character is gracious and merciful. And so we can be all the more confident that his desire to dwell in the midst of his people is not one that can be thwarted. If God wants to dwell with us, he will dwell with us. And such is what we're reminded of here at the end of the book of Exodus. This really is a fresh start for the people of Israel. The tabernacle itself, we're told at the beginning of Exodus 40, which Pastor Thad just read for us, that it was constructed on the first day of the month. Now that may sound insignificant to you, but let me remind you why that's so important. Because this is constituting and demonstrating a new start for the people of Israel. Indeed, you might say it's a new creation. This was a new year. This is one year removed from the Passover in Exodus 12. Marking a new beginning or a new creation for God's people. God in his grace has not poured out judgment on his liberated people who experienced something of a renewal and a revival here. This date provides a microcosm for all of our times where God has brought us to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, is a new creation. When we turn from our bondage in Egypt, we too receive a fresh start and a new life. And when you combine that fact that this text takes place on the first day of the month, there's also allusions to the creation story 
If you'll look at Exodus 39, you'll see this language that I hope reminds you of Genesis chapter 2. Exodus 39, verse 42 and 43, where we read, According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, and so they had done it, then the Lord blessed them. Does that sound like Genesis to you? God had done all his work, and he saw everything that he had done, and he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So this is similar language to Genesis chapter 2, again, underscoring this new start for the people of Israel. Also, we have to remember there's all kinds of overtones of Eden built into the tabernacle structure itself, which reminds us that God is present there. And there is a real sense in which this construction constitutes the beginning of God's recreative purposes as a little piece of heaven finds its way on earth. One more little interesting tidbit before we get into the meat of the passage here. Seven times in Genesis chapter 1, we read, and God said. And seven times in the tabernacle instructions, we read, the Lord said to Moses. I don't think that's an accident. God is reinstituting Eden, a little miniature Eden in his presence in the tabernacle. That's significant. So in these chapters, I want us to learn what forgiveness produces. The people of Israel have been forgiven. They, created a, they, they, they committed a gross sin in idolatry in Exodus 32. God has forgiven them and restored them. And having been confronted in their sin and received God's gracious treatment through the intervention of a mediator named Moses and been forgiven by their God, what kind of people ought they to be? What kind of response ought they to have? You know, Jesus underscores the fact that forgiveness transforms as well. Remember Luke chapter 7, verses 41 to 47? We read the following. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, and for the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did a knot with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus' point is that forgiveness transforms. The depth of our, the recognition of our sinfulness and God treating us with lavish grace transforms us into lovers of God. So that's what we see here in Exodus 35 through 40. We see God's forgiveness transforming the people of Israel. And I want to show you four ways the people of Israel get transformed through the forgiveness of God this morning. First of all, a fresh start produces a faithful rest in God. A fresh start produces a faithful rest in God. Look at Exodus chapter 35 and the first three verses. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, and on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in your, all your dwelling on the Sabbath day. Now, this may seem like, okay, God's just restating the Sabbath instructions again. But again, where are we in the story? Structurally speaking, these Sabbath regulations serve to mirror 
the Sabbath regulations that Moses received at the climax of his time on the mountain. So when he came down the mountain in Exodus 31, verses 12 to 17, God gave the people of Israel the Sabbath instructions. Now he's giving, to them, giving the Sabbath instructions to them again. What's the significance of that? Well, in this instance, they serve to reiterate that God has kept keeping his promises and the covenant still in effect. He's not abandoned his people. They're still to do what God told them they were supposed to do. Remember in Exodus 32, 33, and 34, the covenant was perilously close to destruction. But here, God reinstitutes the Sabbath and says, listen, you're still my people. The covenant that I made with you is still very much in place. Remember, the Sabbath regulations are the sign of the Mosaic covenant, and God is saying those regulations are still in effect because I am still your God and you are still my people. The people are still sanctified by the Lord, and as such, they're required to observe the sign of the covenant. And rather than this being a burden for them in some way, it is in fact a blessing as they get to enjoy rest. I love this about God. I love lots of things about God. But I know that you love this as well. The reality that when God saves us, he doesn't tell us to do anything right away. <laughs> you know, so often when we get treated with kindness or somebody shows us grace, they have this big expectation that we return all this favor that we've shown to them. That's not the case with God. He's, he, he says, I saved you. Here's the first thing I want you to do. Trust and rest in me. And that's a glorious picture. Because we serve a God, brothers and sisters, that doesn't need anything. He's not needing us to somehow make up for some lack in him or supply him with some joy he wouldn't ordinarily have. See, this is a God we want to serve because it's a God that doesn't need us. A God that need us, needed, needs us would not be a God that would call us to enjoy rest. So once a week, he tells the people, stop, enjoy your relationship with me, and the closeness that I have brought to you by virtue of my grace and which, which my grace has now made possible. See, brothers and sisters, grace always precedes obedience. It always precedes obedience. Everything God requires, God supplies. Remember, they're building the tabernacle with materials they didn't earn. The very tabernacle that's being built is a gift from God to them. Remember in Exodus chapter 12, verses 35 and 36, how they get all this stuff. The Egyptians gave it to them. They plundered the Egyptians for all the materials that the tabernacle was built, which is evidence of God's grace and power. They're not building this out of anything they didn't receive. This reminds us, brothers and sisters, just like Isaiah says in 26, Isaiah 26, verse 12, this is our testimony, this will be our testimony on our dying day. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all of our works. <laughs> this is our God the one who does for us all of our works. A fresh start produces a faithful rest in God. Secondly, a fresh start produces a grateful generosity toward God. A fresh start produces a grateful generosity toward God. In Exodus 35, verse 4, all the way through Exodus 36, verse 7, we read of the hearts and minds and spirits of God's people being moved to provide for the tabernacle. It seems that having received forgiveness for their sins, the people of Israel are inclined not only to obey the commands of the Lord, but to do so with lavish generosity. The overwhelming response of the people in Exodus 36, 3 through 7 serves as an amazing testimony to the work of grace in the life of God's people. Would you read those verses with me? Exodus 36, beginning at verse 3. 
And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for, for doing the work of the, on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and the Lord, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. What a testimony. And what a striking contrast to the meager provision that the people made to their false god. You remember what they, the, the contributions they made to their false god in Exodus 32? Let me remind you of those verses. Verses 2 and 3. And Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it into a graving tool and made a golden calf. They offered very little for their false God. But when the true God intervenes and forgives them and saves them, they give it all up. They are willing to do whatever it takes to make the tabernacle a reality. And given the repeated emphasis that the text places on the movement of the people's hearts and spirits, let me just show you a few of this. This is not being driven by compulsion. It's being driven by grace and love for God. Exodus 35 verse 5 where we read, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. We see it again in verse 21, verse 22, verse 29 of chapter 35, and at the beginning of chapter 36 where we read in verse 2, and Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. See, this is a genuine work of grace that's taking place in God's people's hearts and they're moved to give whatever they can to the work of the Lord. Robert Murray McShane says the following about generous giving. When he said, generous giving only comes from a heart that has been moved by God's grace. God gives us a new heart as believers and one of the inevitable results is that of that new heart is generosity. Here's what Murray, Robert Murray McShane wrote about when he once perceived a lack of generosity in his people as a pastor, and he said the following. He said, I am concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you in the, in the great day. I fear there are many hearing me who may know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with his lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it, quick, enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. See, when we give, brothers and sisters, we show that we have been moved by God's grace and favor. Those who understand God's grace freely give. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. Generous giving comes from a heart that's been changed. Has yours? So we've seen a fresh start produces a faithful rest in God. A fresh start produces a grateful generosity toward God. Thirdly, a fresh start produces a careful obedience to God. In Exodus 36 verse 8 through almost the end of chapter 40, we read about the tabernacle actually being constructed. You remember the plans 
are laid out earlier in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 31 and 25 through 31. But here, in 35 through 40, the, the plans are put into action. In 25 through 31, we get the blueprint. And in 36 through, or 35 through 40, we get the construction project. Now, much of the material in this section is a verbatim repetition of all that we've already seen in Exodus 25 through 31. But that emphasizes a point that is made repeatedly throughout this section. That being that the work of the building the tabernacle is being carried out, carried out, quote, according to all that the Lord had commanded. I hope you picked up that phrase as Pastor Thad was reading Exodus 40 over and over again. In fact, seven times in Exodus 40, verse 19, 21, 23, 24, 27, 29, and 32, we read this statement. Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded. Alex Mateer, commenting on this reality, said, this refrain occurs seven times with regard to the individual articles that are made in chapter 39, seven times with regard to the tabernacle articles in the course of completion in Exodus 40, and three times with regard to the work as a whole in Exodus 39, 32, 42 and 43, and then 40, verse 16. Here's the point. The people are very careful and meticulous in the way that they are obeying God's word. See, their observance of the Lord's command is very careful, which is a stark contrast from their previous performance and, and what they did in Exodus 32 when they clearly disobeyed all that God had commanded them to do. Here they are being very, very careful to do what God required them. What do we learn from this? Brothers and sisters, grace does not make us less careful to be obedient. You would think God's been so gracious to them. He's given them everything they don't deserve. He really doesn't care about people obeying him. No, if you think that way, you don't understand grace. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, Shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means. Because living in sin when one has received grace is a complete contradiction in terms. Remember what Jesus said to the sinful woman? He said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So see, not receiving a verdict of condemnation or receiving a verdict of no condemnation from the Lord means that we go and sin no more, that we strive against sin. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. What has he been writing? Well, he's been writing about how God is a God of forgiveness. Remember, confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. But then he says, I'm not writing to that, you that so that you'll have an incentive to sin. Hey, God forgives your sin, so go sin. No, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Turn with me, hold your finger in Exodus 2. I want you to just look briefly at Titus chapter 2. This is one of the best New Testament examples, I think, of how grace doesn't make us less obedient to God, but moves us to be obedient all the more. Titus chapter 2. And verses 13 through, well, we'll begin at verse 12. Let's actually begin back at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see how that logic unfolds? Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. It's brought salvation. But what does the grace of God appearing and bringing salvation do? Verse 12, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It trains us to long for Jesus' second coming. It trains us to purify our, to, to live pure lives and to avoid lawlessness. It trains us to be zealous for good deeds. All those things are what grace does, and that's how we know grace has intercepted our lives when grace has made us not less careful to obey God, but more careful to strive to obey God. Again, grace is not expecting perfection. Of course, we sin. We've already seen that in 1 John when I quoted 1 John chapter 2. We're going to sin. We have an advocate. But nevertheless, grace should make us more careful to obey, just like we see in the people of Israel here. They've been given a fresh start. They're enjoying God's rest. They're showing grateful generosity toward God. But they're also being very, very careful to do what God has told them to do. See, let's not put a, 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 a... a marker between grace and obedience. Grace enables obedience. It's not an option to avoid obedience. Grace is what enables us to obey God. See, the people who care to obey God the most carefully are those who have received grace most lavishly. Those are the ones who are most careful. Fourthly, this is our final uh, point here in the sermon that we're going to apply it in various ways. Fourthly, we've seen, first of all, a fresh start enables them to have a rest in God. They've shown grateful generosity toward God. They've given careful obedience to God. Finally, fourth, a fresh start produces a beautiful dwelling with God. A beautiful dwelling with God. We see this at the end of Exodus in chapter 40, as in verses 34 through 38, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. Now just bask in the wonder, wonder of this for a moment with me. Just as the cloud descended on the mountain several chapters ago in the book of Exodus and the glory of the Lord dwelt there at the top of Mount Sinai, the people didn't have access to it. Moses had access to it. The other priests had partial access to it as they got to go up half the mountain. But here, that glory that was resting on the top of the mountain comes down to dwell in the midst of the people. So that all the people now have access to the glory, of the, God, the glory of God as it fills the tabernacle. What an amazing moment. The cloud covers the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. Up until this point, the glory of the Lord had been at best at arm's length. The people didn't get to experience it for the most part. It was mediated to them by Moses as he came down off the mountain. His face was shining and they got to see the glory of God reflected in his face. But they didn't get to experience it. But now they are getting to experience it. In this climactic moment, the glory of the Lord arrives in the midst of the people and so fills the tabernacle that not even Moses is able to get in. They are getting a better experience of the glory of God than Moses got to enjoy on the top of the mountain. Amazing. Amazing. 
This is the fulfillment of the Lord's stated intention back in Exodus 25, verse 8. And it represents an amazing transition from the beginning of the book. Remember at the beginning of the book where God was relating to his people from heaven? He was hearing their cries. He knew their suffering. He was remembering his promise to Abraham. But here, it's fulfilled. He's come. He's delivered them, and now he's dwelling with them. Remember how we've divided up the book of Exodus. We've said it's kind of in three parts. The God who delivers, the God who demands, and the God who dwells. And here is the fulfillment of his deliverance, that he might dwell with his people. This is the fulfillment of the promise of Exodus 6.6. When we read, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The cloud of glory comes down and fills the tabernacle. Now, this descent looks back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where we read of the Spirit of the Lord hovering over the waters prior to the creation of the earth. Here the, in the cloud, the hovering spirit is depicted, and as the spirit took up residence in the creation, so he does so now in the new creation as the new giver of life. The spirit that hovers in the cloud of glory leads the Israelites. The pillar of cloud guides the Israelites, which is symbolic of the spirit's leading. And we have a much greater fulfillment now. We are now in Christ who leads us by his spirit through his word. The cloud points to the spirits overshadowing Mary in the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 1. And from her we know that the spirit brought about the, the, the word of God. The, the, the word became flesh and the, and, the taber- and, and the tabernacle among us in John chapter 1 verse 14. So this tabernacle that comes to life by the spirit is a for- picture of of the future tabernacle that's going to come to life by the Spirit, namely the incarnation of the Son of God, the eternal God who grants new life according to His Spirit. So there's beautiful imagery here of God's plan to one day fill the earth with His glory. First of all, filling it by the sending of the true tabernacle, the Lord Jesus Christ, who dwells among us. And He's the fulfillment of this. So let me conclude here with several applications um, as we leave the book of Exodus for the time being. I want to talk first of all about how this text points us toward wholehearted devotion to God. The response of the people to the grace of the Lord in this section is, as as we've already pointed out, it's really remarkable. They are both overwhelmingly generous and meticulously obedient, and the author is at pains to remind us that this is what a heart gripped by grace rather than grudging duty does. When we consider the revelation of the Lord that we, as God's people, have now, and what they had back then, how much more should we, as God's people, who've been given the fullest revelation of God in the life and work of Jesus Christ, be all the more generous and all the more meticulous in our obedience than them? My, my argument's from the, from the lesser to the greater. If they were so careful and they were so generous and they were so willing to give of themselves for the purposes of God, in that period of redemptive history, how much more should we now in our period of redemptive history? Where the fullness of the revelation of Christ has come. Where we're not operating in types and shadows like here in the tabernacle. We have the tabernacle who has shown up 
and dwelt among us, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has died and was buried and was raised from the dead as we celebrated last week and we celebrate every Lord's Day. So let me just press home these realities of generosity and obedience on our hearts. Brothers and sisters, if we fully grasp these realities as the people of Israel did on this occasion, then our church will never be one that lacks the resources required to do the work that God has for us to do. Indeed, wouldn't it be amazing if the deacons and elders of Heritage Baptist Church had to turn people away because there was so much serving and so much generosity, we frankly didn't even know what to do with it. Because all of our needs were so abundantly taken care of. And I just want to commend you in these days, church. Having not met for now the better part of a month, you have continued to faithfully be generous. And I'm not just talking about financial generosity. I'm talking about your care for one another, the way you have sought to serve one another, check in with one another, the ways that you have sought to love and meet needs. That's all a sign of God's great grace in your life. And so and it's, it's, it's a greater manifestation because there's nothing to prop it up. We're not meeting. <laughs> We're not meeting, and yet you're generous, and yet you're doing the Christian life, and you're living out your commitments to the Lord just as though we were meeting. And that is a great sign that you should take great encouragement from. But we can still excel in this. We've not arrived. Too often we can become half-hearted in our service and our giving. And let this season not do that. Let this season not dull you from service and giving. So often when we're unplugged from our regular routines and we're not doing the things we normally do, we can just... We let off the gas a little bit. We get a little lazy. We stop being as careful. We're not doing our responsibilities as faithfully as we need to. It'd be very easy for us as pastors to do that. Just coast. We don't want to coast. We want to use this time to pursue God, love God, be refreshed by God, serve God, all the more zealously in this season than, 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 than quote-unquote, when the eyes of the congregation are all on us. We want to do it as to the Lord faithfully. So, brothers and sisters, don't become half-hearted in your service in these days. It's going to look different. We can't do certain things. And enjoy the rest. And I hope the setup team is enjoying a good rest. I hope our nursery folks are enjoying a good rest. Praise God for the rest he's given us. But don't let it, let it dull us or make us not long to do the things we once did. Because that wouldn't be what the Lord would desire of us. In fact, it should create in us a longing to do all that we once did and to do it even better than we did before. When the Lord lifts this pandemic off of us and we're able to return to quote-unquote things as normal, I hope we don't return to normal. I hope we have all the more zeal to gather with God's people more faithfully, to give more generously, to obey more faithfully, to do all that we have been commanded to do with a greater zeal than we had before. Knowing that the, the absence of those things merely created in our heart a longing to do the things we've always wanted to do, but God in his grace took them away for a period of time and made us long to do them all the more. That would be a great gift and, a, and a, an expression of God's kindness to us as a church. So too often I've said we can become half-hearted in our service and giving either because we've forgotten the grace of God or we've forgotten the spectacular worthiness of the cause we serve. Have you, I know I've, I've grown to appreciate this in the last month. I've, I've, I've 
got a new appreciation for the spectacularity of the cause of Christ. (laughs) Because I've seen how churches, not just our church, but other churches, have seen this whole pandemic situation as an opportunity. They haven't backed off the front lines. They've leaned into the opportunities. They've desired to share Christ more faithfully and care for people more faithfully and love others, serve their neighbors, serve their brothers and sisters. And that's a wonderful gift. We are involved in the greatest cause in all the universe, brothers and sisters. Let's be generous to it. Let's give faithfully to it. Far more important, we're building a far greater building than they ever built in Exodus. They built a physical tabernacle, which was a temporary structure. We're building the kingdom of God, which will last forever. So the people of Israel give us a fantastic concrete example to follow in their generosity. Secondly, they also give us a fantastic um, example to follow in their obedience. Similarly, when we grasp the full revelation of our God, it should work out in a desire to live out all that he commands us to do. There are many areas of the Christian life that we find more straightforward to live out than others, but the real test of a heart that's been captivated by grace is a determination to be obedient to all that the Lord asks us to do. Sometimes this requires strenuous efforts on our parts, and oftentimes we will fail. But the grace of God encourages us to get up and go again, full of the zeal for godliness and determination to please our God. So I hope that one of the things that God is teaching you, I know he's teaching me, is when I strip things away from your life and your routines, and I start to... uh, take away the normal com- some of the normal comforts and luxuries and things that you get to enjoy, what do you fill that time up with? What, now that we've got a little ba- bandwidth, and I know some of you out there, you're working just as much as you always have. Your weeks haven't changed all that much. Um, you're not gathering with the church, but basically it feels the same. So I, I understand that too. But I want to ask you, this opportunity, this pandemic, this slowing down of the pace gives us an opportunity to evaluate our hearts. Not in some sort of morbidly introspective way that's not healthy, but rather just saying, is God enough? Do I love the Lord? Will I obey him? Will I do what he requires me to do when the pressure of my rhythms and the expectations of my normal routine are not bearing down upon me? Will I still walk with God? And will I still love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? I pray that that would be the case. Let me conclude with two other quick applications. Not only do we see wholehearted devotion to the Lord in terms of generosity and obedience, we also see wholehearted enjoyment of the Lord promised. We can't read this account of the construction of the tabernacle without letting our minds move toward two other things. And I, these, are just, these are just wonderful realities. I hope they'll comfort you all week long. First of all, the fact that the Lord has, by the Spirit of Christ, taken up residence in our hearts. We are the tabernacle. The Spirit of the Lord dwells in your life, Christian. Our God is a God who delights to dwell with His people, and it's a unique privilege that we get to enjoy and look forward to. They got to enjoy the Spirit of God in a building, we get to enjoy the Spirit of God in our bodies. They never got that. They never got the Spirit of God in their body. They got the Spirit of God in a building, but we get the Spirit of God 
in our bodies. But that's not even the greatest. That's a beautiful reality. We could spend a whole sermon talking about that. But this passage points us even more forward to a greater reality than the residence of the Spirit of God in our hearts, and that's the residence of God in the earth. It's even more remarkable when we consider that not even Moses was able to get into the tabernacle on New Year's Day here. But now, however, we can say that the glory of the Lord has taken up residence, not in our neighborhoods or in our homes, but in our hearts. And we have that day-by-day intimacy that Israel so longed for but could only enjoy in part. So let me talk briefly in, in conclusion about the glory of God and his residence in the new earth. We look forward to the day when it will be a tangible experience where we will enjoy the presence of God, not in a little building tent in, the, in a corner of the Sinai Desert, but in a way that envelops and overcomes and fills the entire earth that God has made. This earth will one day become a living tabernacle of God's presence with us as his people. And we will see God face to face and gaze on his glory for all eternity. It should cause us to give great thanks this morning to the one we've been singing about and singing to, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because without Jesus, none of this is possible. Without the man of sorrows, without the wonderful cross, without the reality that all we have is Christ, without the grace unmeasured, vast and free that knew us from eternity, we wouldn't have any of this. We would have no hope of God's residence in our hearts. We'd have no hope for God's residence in the earth. But because of Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, this former impossibility has been made possible. And it should cause us to take advantage of all that God has given us by delighting in him. And delighting in the God who dwells within us and among us as a church and who will dwell with us one day when he comes again to fill the entire earth. May that encourage you and may that hope encourage you to be all the more generous, all the more faithful, all the more obedient until he comes and we make our home with him. Music team, please come and we're going to sing once more and then we'll conclude our service. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the precious realities that are present in the book of Exodus. Thank you for the opportunity for the better part of over a year now, we've been able to sit in this book and see the God who is, see the God who makes himself known, see the God who delivers his people, see the God who makes demands of his people, but see the God who dwells with his people. These have been beautiful days for us as a church to sit in the book of Exodus and consider you to be reminded of who you are, to be reminded of who we are in all of our weakness but to be reminded of who you are in all of your grace and all of your power and all of your hope giving strength to us. Fill us in these days, God, afresh with these realities that they would orient us toward your kingdom, orient us toward loving you and loving each other, orient us outside of ourselves so that we are brought up and into the realities that this book is meant to teach us, that you are a God who once dwelled with your people in a tent, but came in history to dwell in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then through his work to dwell within us and within your church, and will one day come to dwell in the new heavens and the new earth, which we long for. Even so, we pray, come Lord Jesus.
we ask in your name. Amen.